Welcome to episode 140 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversations with sacrament-trusted partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all the podcast players or by going to sacrament.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us in Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. Our sponsor this week is PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. On today's episode, I'm having a conversation with an Army veteran and colleague, Dr. Adil Torres-Rivera. Dr. Torres-Rivera is a professor of counseling and the director of the Latinx Cluster Initiative at Wichita State University. He is a native Puerto Rican with a career of over 25 years in counseling, including 12 years in the United States Army, and is a current president of the American Counseling Association. You can find out more about Dr. Torres-Rivera by checking out his bio in our show notes. Let's get into my conversation with him and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. Adil, so glad to see you again as you and I were recently together in person, but I'm really excited to be able to share your story since you and I have a lot in common, both as veterans and as mental health professionals. I'd like to start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself, your military journey, and how that sort of supported you in your professional career afterwards. Yeah, it's cool. I, I came to the ranks in terms of military because I was in Puerto Rico and the only way to get a job was to join the military, which is not uncommon to many people of color, as you know. So I ended up signing up because in reality, what I wanted to be was a professional fighter. I heard from a friend of mine who was an old army boxer, if I go to the army, they will let me fight. So I thought that was the first attraction. For the first time, somebody going to pay me for something that I like to do for free. You know, I joined the military and interesting enough, I was part of the 24 Infantry Division post-tour bossing thing. And I spent three years doing that. Then later on, you know, I find out that, you know, the army don't let you move and wait as you were doing civilian. So I had to quit and then try to get my job. And I was able to get a job as a behavior science specialist. That time was in I1 Gulf. They changed the MOS now. And one thing that was very interesting is that the military actually taught me, the very first thing they taught me was that if I understand the system, I would be able to get my education for free. I remember that one time they used to pay about 75% of your tuition for every class you take, you know? So I went on, I got my bachelor when I was in the military. I got my master. And my first three courses on my PhD paid by the army when I still didn't have to do it. I think that piece, you know, actually got me in uh, my foot in the door because what I was doing that as my job in the army, working with civilians, working with spouses, family members, working with commanders, and yes, being an enlisted man, they opened my door for a lot of different kind of things. And then being allowed to go to school to actually do the same job, I thought it was great. That's what actually interesting. That's what I enjoy. ACA on those days, uh, I used to be have a long name, Association for Guidance and Personnel, something like that. I think that in my civilian life, take a lot of the things that I learned in the Army. One of them was, for example, that you cannot just sign up to be a sergeant. You cannot sign up to be a general. You have to move to the ranks, which allowed me 
to actually understand leadership from the perspective of you learn how to lead by following. And then eventually you will be able to gain enough experience to be able to lead, which is very different in civilian life. In civilian life, you go and sign up to be the dean or the interview to be the dean and you're the dean. That's it. <laughs> so I think that, that was uh, very unique. I think that eventually when I come to civilian life, one of the things that was very interesting to me was the similarities between some systems in academic with the army. Mm. With the only difference in the army, you know who have the power because you can look at the rank. And in civilian life, you never know. Sometimes the secretary is the one who has all the power and nobody knows. But that's pretty much a short kind of thing that the, the army have been my trampoline, have been my, my back off on how to act as a counselor, as a mental health person. Uh, and all the teachings that I have in the army have served me in civilian life very well. I think that's a nutshell of my story. It's really interesting how you talk about why you joined the military. I, I grew up in St. Louis, St. Louis City, and then the suburbs. I joined because I had nothing else to do. It, it get out of my dad's basement, right? I was tired of sleeping in my old man's basement and really didn't have a lot of prospects. And, and for you, you were like, that was the way out. That was a way for many young men and women to go do something. But it was also something like adventure, like you wanted to be a boxer, right? I wanted to jump out of airplanes. Did you think that the Army at that point, think back when you were leaving Puerto Rico and you were going to join the military, that you would be a third of the way towards your doctorate once you were done? Did you think the education piece was going to be as significant that it was? No, I was. I, I didn't have an idea. I had a clue. Something interesting happened when I was a first tour. They sent me to the field, and I never seen such a big mosquitoes. I mean, the Puerto Rico got mosquitoes. The first tour, the swamp up there in Georgia have big mosquitoes. And I make a, a point to actually start to investigate everything that the army had to offer when you have to do it. So I started to kind of learn that you can go to school and they, they pay for you to go to school. Then I find out that in order for you to move to, to promotion, the education was a big factor of that. I remember when I, I moved from Sergeant E5 to E6, I got 987 points out of possible 1,000 points based on my doing my literary research about what the army had to offer. So I thought it was, I thought it was great. I thought it was the best opportunity they would have in my life. Of course, I had to do my homework, but I thought it was worth it. Once I do the homework, and this is the interesting piece because I was a counselor in the army, all my homework also helped me to help my fellow soldiers to move transition to do the things that they need to do. So I thought it was very interesting. I mean, and the funny part is there is no secret. You ask, they will tell you. But if you don't ask, they will tell you. No, they, they definitely don't. They don't offer it to you. You have to ask for those parts of it. You mentioned you were a behavioral health specialist. You were gracious enough not to say when you served, but you did say that it was in when it was a previous designation than it was now as 91 Gulf. I'm curious in, in your experiences in the behavioral health field in the Army, how is your perspective on military and veteran mental health, having been a veteran, but also counseled soldiers while you were in? Do you think it's changed? Has it stayed the same? What do you think about how it's sort of evolved over the years? It changed a little bit because I feel that at the end, I went to 1979 to 1992. Okay, that's my time. It changed because at the end, what they were doing is contracting a lot of civilians to the service, which I thought was interesting in terms of as a soldier, I can relate a lot more to the fellow soldiers versus a civilian. And the only difference civilians don't, have, don't go to the field. They, if a commander asked me to go to the field, I have to go to the field with them. I cannot say no. 
But I thought it was also the idea that the people who I work with can relate to me. I remember many of them asking to work with me, even though at the time they didn't have a master. They want to ask because they thought that I was experienced. I was not the education. I was the experience, was the person who do the hands-on component. So I thought that that piece started to change a little bit. And I don't know now, but I know at that time, the, the army was abandoning a little bit more of the service member doing that job and they start contracted to civilians. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but I thought I remember that the soldiers seemed to relate to me a lot more than they relate to the, my counterparts, the civilian people. I think it's interesting, as you mentioned, how you serve in that times, that Cold War period, right? Even as, if we look back, especially Army history, but military history, post-Vietnam, you, you went through the 80s. A lot of people think about, obviously, Vietnam in the late 60s and the early 70s, and then the Gulf War was right there at the end of the time that you were in the service. Uh, but I'm curious what it was like for you as a service member in that Cold War. It wasn't easy. The military is an inherently dangerous job. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious what it was like for you and some of the, the service members that you were helping out during that time where, quote unquote, no war was happening, but there was still a lot of challenges. But that's the interesting piece. When I was serving, we got Grenada. Yeah. Okay. We, there was something going on in Costa Rica. I don't know what it was, but I know there was something going on because I was stationed on Fort San Houston during my training, and we have a lot of soldiers who come injured from Central America. And then we got this storm. And one of the funny pieces is that I volunteered for all of them, and they never sent me because my friends were going. So, I mean, so it was kind of interesting, like left behind. But I think that, yes, where we supposedly in a peacetime, there was no lack of casualties. And one of the things that I saw, at least when I was stationed in Kirchhoff, okay, in fact, I served under Colin Power when he was stationed in Frankfurt. So I think that the one thing that we saw was that the substance abuse piece and the isolation of the soldiers seems to be very high. So even though there was a peacetime kind of army, was also an army who was in a lot of stressors. And family members, you know, every time we deploy, family members seems to be also very much in need. No different from what's going on right now. I also know that we dealt a lot with the suicide attempts, even though, again, it was a peacetime army. The, uh, the stress was any any less than it was during wartime. But I think that this is kind of an interesting piece of how I, I, it's interesting when I see right now the suicide rate among our our vets. And so, wow, it's been going on like that for a while. I just we didn't pay attention. So finally, we pay attention. I remember that when I was in the service, they never no, they let me go. And when I go to to the airport and buy my ticket to go first, who's always last? Right, no. And and I think and in, in, in it definitely is and and I in in it, when I was a clinician I had a lot of Cold War veterans who are obviously have a lot of the same things just because it wasn't combat doesn't mean it wasn't stressful or it wasn't dangerous as you had mentioned so you mentioned then after the military and then you talk about academia and you've had a career in academia and so I'm curious how you come out you finish your PhD and now you're working with students who may be disconnected from the military may not understand the military may not understand your role in the military. I wonder what it was like shifting from military into academia for you. It was a little bit interesting. Um, I, I thought there was a lot of parallels, okay? The only, again, the only thing I think was the, who, who had the power. And civilian life is, is a lot more political than in the military. In military, you can actually assess the, the rule by looking at who had the rank, okay? And that gives you some guidelines. But the transition was, was not as hard as I thought it would be. But there was a little difficult in the idea of trying to understand. And always in the military, you're trying to improvise. You're trying to do 
more with less. So all those kind of interesting things. So in civilian life was every time I come back and say, oh, we need more faculty, academia, politics, academia, more faculty position. Okay. And I said, but do you, do you have the number of students? No. When the meantime was the other way around, they give you all the students and then you will come back and say, hello, I need help. <laughs> So I thought that was an interesting kind of uh, transition and change. But I will say that the discipline that I learned, the military and boxing too, because you remember the boxing in the army, allowed me to finish my PhD, allowed me to time myself to do the things that I need to do. I think that if I have a way to do kind of things, I also would like to prepare students to serve service members, to get them a hint in how to work with the military, because many of the people, when they went to our volunteer service, most of the people joined is people like you and I, who don't know what to do with themselves, who are going to the service, you know? So I think that, that was, but the transition was a little bit a shift to some degree because I was not able to understand the politics. So it took me a little while to understand the politics of academia. And you've served in academia. You've been on faculty at a number of different universities, which I think is another value of military service is you learn to adapt in communities that you normally would not find yourself in Kirschgorn, Germany, or where you're at now, perhaps Wichita, Kansas. Like, I'm, I'm curious how the military has prepared you to interact with the diverse group of people, because like you said, we're all thrown in together. Yeah, I think that what the Army taught me, which I thought was very interesting, I never thought about that before, but there was like, in the Army, you got a job, your PCS and the first thing you know is you have a job, okay? That's the first thing you get acquainted with. So in my civilian life, that's exactly what I've been doing. So every time I just get acquainted with my job, and then after that, I adjust to my community. So I, I thought it was interesting because that's what the military do. You move, you know, you get to there, you get to know where your position is, what you're going to do, blah, blah, blah. And then a couple of weeks or days later, then your household coming, and you have a family day coming after that too. But your very, very first touch, is with your job. And I think that, that in my academia, that's what I've been doing. The very first thing that I do is get acquainted with my job. And then after that, I get acquainted with my community. And I think that has served me well. And I've been places like being Buffalo, Florida, Gainesville, Chicago, now Wichita. You know, so I've been in places that are like day and night. But as long as I can I get acquainted with the job, I think that, that, and again, that's the military helping me to adjust because that's a first, my first point of contact, my job. You know, I, I, I really appreciate that. And of course, how you and I connected, as I mentioned, you and I just came back from an event that we're connected professionally through our work in the American Counseling Association, to where you're currently serving as the president. For those listeners who may not know, the American Counseling Association is the national organization for professional counselors. So you served in the military, you got your education, now you're in academia. And yet again, now here's an organization, you're leading this organization at this period of time. I'm curious to hear what it means for you as a veteran, maybe as a person of color, to serve in the role of the president of the American Counseling Association. It made me very humble and very honored to be able to serve in this position for a couple of things. My background as a military man gave me something. And being a person of color, I think I'm the second Latino and the first male Latino in this position. So it humbled me very much to also put a lot of responsibilities, which I think go back, lay back into the military. You must lead by example. You may never ask anybody to do something that you don't want to do. Because I think that sometimes we confuse leadership with managing. And a leader will walk 
the walk with the troops. We're not just send the troop and then stay home and watching TV. So that part is, is very much like my kind of approach to this position. I must never ask anybody to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. And I will actually lead by doing rather than just saying. So I think that's part of the military background. And this is part of what I think that in my position, I need to be doing. That's my philosophy on how I go and do this year. And if we think about representation of places of authority, as you said before, you don't go into the military and become a sergeant major or a general or a command master chief. But even as a young soldier, if you didn't see people in those positions of authority that look like you, you might not have necessarily thought there is a way for me there. And now, and especially in the professional counseling space, this is also demonstrative to other veterans. Veterans may not see themselves in positions of authority or power in post-military life, but really you're doing that, as you said, as a Latino and as a veteran, being able to demonstrate that there is a path to wherever anyone's at, because there are people that look like you in these positions of authority now. It's mentoring. I think that the, sometimes we think that mentoring is you just go there and do a workshop. Mentoring is just walking, doing, showing. You and I both know that our client going to be watching more of what we do than what we said. Okay. I do have a couple of first sergeant. Actually, I have a first sergeant who I admire very much. And he defined himself as a redneck, which I thought was very interesting. But he said, I am redneck, but the best soldiers that we have are Puerto Ricans. And you are my Puerto Ricans. But he taught me. He actually took the time to actually show me the rope. So I'm saying, they just don't tell shoot. They tell you, okay, this is how you do it. You squeeze the trigger. You can't. So you, so all this kind of things. So this guy was, took his time. And I remember every morning, he started to look at me, look at, that was the day, so speak chying and starch. You remember? <laughs> so I said, look at me and he said, looking good. And that's exactly how I want to look. But I thought there was that piece in which there was, uh, uh, was a nurturing part. That we never talk about the military. That, that part that, that, that this guy started to look at since I was his son. And, but I know it was not the only one. He did the same thing with all the young troops. So I think that part is, is still very resonant with me to this day. No, I, I appreciate that. And, and even to the part of where you didn't have other things in common, you had the military in common. I, I even think back, as I mentioned, I grew up, graduated high school, suburban St. Louis, my first roommate. And then we were in the 82nd year. We were together the first six years. He grew up in Hilo, Hawaii. Nowhere ever would a kid from Hilo, Hawaii and a kid from suburban St. Louis end up jumping out of airplanes together and all this other stuff. You mentioned your friends. You mentioned you served under General Powell. But this idea of a lot of people don't realize, yes, the military today is more diverse, but there is a lot of exposure to diversity in the military. I'm not someone who says we all bleed as green. I know the military has its problems, but it's really, as you were saying, Culturally, you may not have some similarities, but you do have some shared values that can really go a long way to build trust with each other. And you remember that there was a, actually, when I was in, in Germany, I was stationed in Frankfurt, but I went, I remember the Heidelberg used to have an intelligence unit. It did a lot of research. And there was a guy by the name, Egram, and he did a lot of studies. He was a, a clinical psychologist and he did a lot of studies about people who eat together, people who sleep together, they will die together. And his idea was on how cohesive and how close a platoon can get, a squad can get, in which, you know, we don't care how we look differently, how our values are different. We get there because we fight together, because we sleep together. We're going to protect each other as much as we can. I'm always thinking, if I want somebody 
in, in my in my potential, you know, would be this, 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 and that. You know, so I got I got people who you know that that you can count on no matter what. The military did that for me. Yeah, no, I I definitely agree. I appreciate you taking the time, especially a, a lot of times. And you mentioned it before we start. A lot of times, outside of military and veteran circles, you and I can talk for hours and hours because we're veterans, right? But outside of military and veteran circles. People say, oh, you serve in the military. Oh, that's nice. And what's next? Like they give you the respect, but then also it's like just another aspect of your personality. And people don't really realize how important it is to us. I think that the one of the things that, that, that I found, and you can see that interesting enough coming from the public projects of Puerto Rico, you can see that sometimes in gang, in gang affiliation. And people seem to dismiss that when the army is not a gang affiliation, get you more than that. It's the idea in which how you start to trust people. So the, the background, the military, is a big part of who we are. It's not something that you can dismiss. It's like, I just always, when someone say, oh, you're in the army. And I remember 12 years, six months, and three days. So, <laughs> and when I remember that for years, it's because that's how important it was for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I appreciate you joining us today. To tell us about your story, I appreciate your service, both then and now as the president uh, of ACA and your continued service, obviously, support for your students. If people wanted to find out more about you or maybe connect with you, maybe if they're professional counselors listening, they want to learn more about you and your work as the president of the ACA, how can they do that? They can actually email me and then I can wish you to stay university and the only Torres in the whole campus. They can actually go to the ACA website and drop me a line. I will, I will answer. Whoever wants to get in touch with me, I will answer. Maybe taking you a day or two, like today, I've been behind this computer all day answering emails. But I will, I'm always, particularly if there's a veteran out there who thinks that I can be of, of service, I will be at their service anytime they, they need me to. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll make sure that the link to your email is in the show notes. Adil, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you, Dwayne. Thank you for inviting me. Anytime you want to talk in Spanish, let me know. We do that too. <laughs> thank you very much. Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. There are a couple of things that came up for me after this conversation with the deal. One of the first is the common experiences that many veterans have, which includes both the good and the bad. But during our conversation, Adil talked about how the Army provides opportunities for education for service members. And, as a fellow recipient of the educational resources from the Army, I can firmly attest to that. I think that a lot of people who haven't served are familiar with the idea that the military pays for college. It's one of the main selling points for recruiting and one of the bedrock benefits that many veterans expect after their time in the military. What is less known, however, are the educational benefits that service members have access to while in the military. Quick story. I was in Iraq in 2006 when one of my soldiers walks into the company command center with a big smile on his face. He had just gotten his diploma for his associate's degree in the mail, and he was proud, rightfully so. After my congratulations to him, he asked me, what's your degree in, Sergeant? And I said something like, my degree's in none of your business, with maybe a few more choice words. While I had taken some college courses before joining the military, enough to know that it wasn't for me at that time in my life. I'd been in the Army for about 15 years at that point, and I was a sergeant first class, but I didn't have a college degree. The soldier laughed and said that I might want to check out the resources available, 
So I did, and over the next seven years, the Army paid for an associate's degree, a bachelor's degree, an undergrad certificate, and a full year of my first master's degree. The GI Bill helped out with the rest after I got out, but like a deal, I've always said that for all of the stuff that the Army put me through and got out of me, the educational opportunities have been far and away one of the most valuable. The other point that I'd like to make after our conversation is one that's extremely familiar with veterans but not often talked about, the inherent value that we see in mentorship and team development. Adil talked about his first sergeant in the military who, while of a different racial and ethnic group than him, still provided mentorship guidance and support. That's one thing that a lot of service members valued in the military. At every stage of my career, I have one leader who stood out to me, the squad leader who taught me how to be a soldier, the platoon sergeant who taught me how to be a squad leader, and so on. Even the exchange that I just shared about related to education, where the lower-ranking sergeant provided me some beneficial advice. Mentorship, encouragement, coaching, all of these things are aspects of military service that go beyond someone's occupational specialty and duty assignment. They are core aspects of who we are and what we do. It's a form of service and one way to continue to serve in post-military life. So if you know a veteran who may be struggling in post-military life, Connect them with opportunities for them to share their skills and mentor others. It could be one of the best things for them. So I hope you appreciated my conversation with Dr. Torres Rivera. I was honored to be able to share his story, both as a fellow veteran and as a colleague, as he is president of the country's leading association for professional counselors. If you appreciated the conversation too, we would like to hear from you. So if you do have some feedback, let us know. Drop a review in your podcast player of choice or send us an email at info at we're always glad to hear from listeners, both feedback on the show and suggestions for future guests. For this week's Psychomer Resource of the Week, I'd like to share a course on bolstering resilience, which is part of the Brain Health and Wellness Learning Series. This course, sponsored by the Wounded Warrior Project, highlights five factors of wellness, goal setting, mental health, nutrition, sleep, and exercise. You'll learn why these supporting pillars are so important to overall well-being, their application in daily life, and how it's never too late to make a change. You can find a link to the course in our show notes. So thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find in the podcast app, as well as on the Psychummer website, psychummer.org forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can find hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation and make sure to engage with Psychummer on social media to let us know what you thought about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by Psycharmor. Much appreciation to the team at Psycharmor that makes the show happen. Carol Turner, Vice President of Strategic Communications, who keeps me on track and is an outstanding guest coordinator, support and transcripts by Emma Atherall. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we request that you do, but make sure to let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.